Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley, hello. Today we are discussing Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. So Wes, you're kind of the um, Stephen King guy. Okay, fair enough. Between the two of us, I will take that role. I'm the good, not boring Stephen King person. Where does <laughs> where does <laughs> Dr. Sleep fit in to Stephen King's oeuvre? Well, as we all know, Stephen King doesn't have a great track record with adaptation. It tends to be utter crap or total brilliance. Movies that either endure or disappear. While he doesn't like The Shining, The Shining movie obviously endures as the classic The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption. These are all Stephen King. Lots of different movies that have been adapted. But Don't some, forget my favorite. Which is your favorite? Stand By Me. Okay. And all of these are not quite as horror-based as maybe The Shining is. And so sort of his more successful work adaptation-wise tends to not be outright horror. So hit or miss. Um, I don't know that he has the best. He's the best judge of who should take over his projects. I think it might be luck. He's also notorious for giving the rights to his short stories over to students and and burgeoning filmmakers for a dollar. He calls them his dollar babies. Huh. So, uh, but what they do with them obviously is not... uh, it's not like he's he's got a stranglehold on the standards have for those any, productions. Have any of the Dollar Babies gone on to become successes? I don't know. I don't go to Dollar Baby movies like I don't go to Dollar Theaters. That's a bad correlation. <laughs> dollar Theaters are awesome, not that there are many around these days. As long as you don't sit in the back row, as the sneak will attest. What happens in the back row? You don't want to know, but you also don't want to have to clean up the floor of the back row. Um, noted. Okay, moving on. Dr. Sleep is an interesting path because if you don't know, The Shining was adapted by Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King really did not like it. Well, it was quite different from the book. Quite different. And you and I have both read read the book. I read it pretty recently and was struck. uh, If I read it before, I don't remember all the changes uh, because The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's film, looms so large in my mind. so the differences from the book are the ones to which Stephen King, with which Stephen King took umbrage, uh, particularly the arc of Jack Torrance's character. Mm. And starting as a normal guy who is seduced and enthralled and affected by the hotel, um, he felt that Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, he didn't have that arc. Jack Nicholson was and is crazy from the beginning. Mm. And so there was no descent into madness. It just needed to be unlocked or something. Uh-huh. Uh, had a lot of issues with that. 
I think that was the primary focus because it was an autobiographical character for Stephen King. So Jack Torrance. Uh huh. Well, yeah, he had a lot of issues. He's a writer character, uh, struggling, uh-huh, struggling with it with alcoholism and things, and questioning his ability to be a good father and what that means. And if it really something. Uh, some kind of catalyst happens where all the worst things about you are unlocked and basically the demons take hold, what that could mean for your family. So you think he took umbrage with the changes made to Jack Torrance's character. I thought that he, I mean, the most blatant um, difference between the movie and the book was the ending. Yeah, the movie and the ending, which comes to bear on Dr. Sleep because they had to find a way to continue this. Of course, his sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, as a novel is a continuation of his novel, which couldn't have happened in the movie. So when Mike Flanagan comes around to direct Dr. Sleep, he has to sit Stephen King down and tell him in no uncertain terms, look, I'm making a movie here and the movie is going to continue The Shining, the movie version with which so many more people are familiar. So directing an adaptation of your novel as a continuation of your novel won't track for movie viewers. We have to have some reference to the Stanley Kubrick movie, and King agreed. Reluctantly, I don't know. Okay. So we have Dr. Sleep. So I did read The Shining, and I did rewatch The Shining. I didn't read Dr. Sleep, and I'm wondering, is it faithful? Not I mean, I know that you, had, you were just saying they had to make adjustments for continuing Stanley Kubrick's The Shining movie, but was it otherwise faithful? To an extent, all things considered, it is a pretty faithful adaptation. It's uh, it's kind of measured, and it takes its time, and doesn't resort to the sort of fantastic elements you would expect. We're not thrown into a haunted house type horror movie that one would expect from a lesser filmmaker uh, in a remake of or in a in an adaptation or a sequel to The Shining. But by nature, movies adaptations of books are abridged versions, right? So you got to change things to make things work. And for the most part, I think the changes in Doctor Sleep really worked. Okay, I guess that's good, but it doesn't have a lot of bearing on if the movie worked as a whole. So you're going up against and trying to satisfy long time, decades long fandom of a juggernaut in the horror movie uh, oeuvre, right? I mean, The Shining ranks in the top ten for all the horror lists of best horror. I tend to agree with those lists, at least in terms of older movies and not the Saw bullshit, um, where horror is an atmosphere more than a character or blood and guts. So it is no small feat to try to make a worthy successor to The Shining. Does successor qualify as a follow-up, or does it have to be better than? Successor just is the next thing in line. Sure. Yeah. So doesn't have to top it, per se. So I will say that Dr. Sleep intends to be a mature horror movie. Like the book, it is more measured and doesn't shoot for the more obvious horror elements in a way that I think the adaptation of It did. What's the rating on Dr. Sleep? Rating? Mm-hmm. I think it's an R. You think so? Yeah. I'll double check because it felt kind of tweeny. Really? It felt like maybe Dr. Sleep was YA and adapted appropriately for a PG-13 audience. I mean, there was some creepy demon gory stuff going on, but, and maybe it was Rose the Hat who kind of set the tone, but it felt kind of um, YA or CW or something. <laughs> Where she's speaking, that like how CW is, is synonymous, right? With, uh, with, with, with YA. But, but didn't, but don't, you know what I mean? It was a little like, like this is like, it's a vampire. It's like in the vein of like the CW vampire movies. 
or shows. Ooh, no, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I can see what you're saying. She sets the tone by speaking to a young girl, and uh, her character is introduced in, in sort of that way. It's hard for us to see the sort of brutality of the true knot until Baseball Boy dies screaming in a prolonged scene of anguish, which uh, might have been hard on mothers, right, hearing a little kid scream for that extended amount of time. Right. I think it gets pretty hairy, but it never stumbles into R-rated territory for the fact, for the sake of a rating, because they can push an envelope. Right. Um, I don't think it's possible to live up to The Shining, and I think they knew that. So I think they made the best movie that they could, uh, trying to be responsible and effective for an older audience who would love The Shining. I don't know that tweens are into that sort of thing. Um, I think that having context for The Shining really helps this movie because this is a little bit of an unwieldy story. I think it's absolutely essential. If you haven't seen The Shining, don't see Dr. Sleep, please. <laughs> right. It's not only because you'd be spoiling Dr. Sleep for yourself, but because the context is essential. There's, we've got multiple characters with multiple storylines in multiple locations. We've got people talking to each other in each other's heads, and not directly. And there's a lot of um, new lore and backstory to understand regarding the knot, because if I'm if I'm not mistaken, there's no reference to the knot in The Shining. Not mistaken, no. The true knot did not exist in The Shining. So I, I thought that it was fairly complicated storytelling, and maybe the chapter device helped, and maybe their kind of intentional slow pacing and planting of seeds between the relationships helped. I mean, it it just seemed like it was a little unwieldy and. Um, they did pretty well tying it all together. Hang on. Did you watch the director's cut? The extended cut? Yeah. <laughs> Why? So the theatrical version, the cut, doesn't have the chapter breaks. Oh. And I, I noticed that while watching the director's cut, so this will be interesting. I thought that the chapter breaks were very Stranger Things reminiscent. There were a lot of Stranger Things references, like the bloody nose and being able to use this kind of powerful force to move objects or break things. Stranger Things in itself, hugely devotional to Stephen King. Yeah. So is it art copying? Is that, what's the phrase? Meta? I mean, no, it's, you know, when it's like, there's like the Disneyland effect where it's like, you see something in real life and you're like, oh, it's like at Disneyland. Yeah, it should I, be the opposite. Yeah, I forget the term for that. Yeah, so where you go to see the Matterhorn and you're like, dude, I feel like I'm at Disneyland right now when you're, <laughs> exactly. in, when you're in the Swiss Alps, copy you. Yeah, so, um, but, so maybe that's a little bit Disneyland effect to say that Dr. Sleep is like Stranger Things. But there were a lot of, I thought, kind of familiar horror or sci-fi tropes in Dr. Sleep. Like, basically... The pusher uses the force. The Snake bite Andy, yeah, the girl? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh, okay. The question, I think the large question, uh, because Dr. Sleep didn't do very well in the theater, its only notable distinction is that it got, it got fairly good reviews for something trying to follow up on a Stephen King book, mm -hmm. on a St Stephen King uh, adaptation, which became a movie classic. But, so I think the question is, is its efficacy as a, as a movie on its own merits? 
and uh, Quentin Tarantino actually came to its defense and said that it was one of his favorite movies of last year. Of course, it didn't receive any awards recognition or anything like that, but just a question of whether or not the movie itself is good, aside from the Stephen King Association or the, uh, the, the book which preceded it or the movie which preceded it. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to review Dr. Sleep back in the summertime when it was still in the theaters. Yeah, it didn't get any love. I was excited to see it. Um, it didn't look amazing to me in the trailers, but when I saw it, I had strong opinions about it. Is that why you wanted to review it? Mm-hmm. And are you getting into those now? Nope. Why don't we get into those? Okay. So I appreciated this movie for what, what it was and what it tried to do without trying to be, trying to be a go-for-broke horror movie, mm -hmm. right? Which would alienate certain fans but might draw in a larger group of kids or younger people or whatever. It's not what I was looking for. I was looking for a movie that could stand on the shelf next to The Shining without having to be its success for, successor either in tone or in storytelling ability or in shock factor or anything like that. And I think in that case it does its job. I did have some serious qualms with the movie that uh, I wanted to bring up. And okay. that is similar to the qualms that I have with um, another movie we're going to review, which is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. which oh, is, interesting. So sticking with this movie, Dan Torrance, as played by Ewan McGregor, I think is fine. Is it close? Um, does he look like the Danny Torrance of old? I don't know. But neither do the recreation characters that's not but what we have to flash back to the shining right or at least the world of the shining so we see danny torrance as a young boy we see some of the set pieces of the shining all recreated by these actors did they use any actual footage from the shining yes they did so mike flanagan used a couple of shots the driving shot which would have been almost impossible to recreate when they head up to the overlook they uh, put a night filter on it they added a bunch of snow and they changed the car but that winding through the mountain shot i don't think that's possible anymore because of how the roads were um, similarly the helicopter shot over the lake when they pass that island in the lake when the mm. shining theme comes up mm -hmm. and they're headed back up to the Overlook Hotel. Mm -hmm. That was a stolen shot with filters and snow applied to it. How about Wendy screaming in the bathroom as the axe comes through the door? I don't think so. So getting staying with the actors, nobody looked like the actors who preceded them in The Shining, right? We have Dick Halloran who's back, uh, the cook. We have Wendy and Dan Danny Torrance, the young version. We even have Jack Torrance back in effect. As the bartender. Uh, as the bartender, right? As, as who stands in now for Lloyd in Danny's version of the Overlook Hotel as he comes to visit it. Um, no, nobody looked exactly right. Nobody sounded exactly right. But there were moments of familiarity that so shook me that I was able to grasp onto those. They were like toe holds and finger holds that allowed me to stay in the Overlook mm -hmm. and keep my disbelief in check. Like? When... Uh, Wendy, when she runs out to call to Danny when he's on the bench talking to Dick Halloran, yeah, she does this breathy like, Danny, kind of. <laughs> it, it was so shocking. I'm almost convinced, like you said, that they took some of the audio from The Shining uh -huh. and put it in until she grabs him and starts to speak. You can't do that to me. It's just it's so perfectly Shelley Duvall that it's shocking. Huh. And it's it's not. She doesn't look hardly anything like hers except in dress and hairstyle. Uh -huh. But those moments so firmly rooted it um, that it was successful. Does the kid who plays young Danny who goes back into that bathroom in room 237, does he look the same at all? No. But there are moments that are so close, this de multiple decades on, it worked for me. Uh -huh. Ewan McGregor, does he look okay as adult Danny Torrance? Absolutely. What didn't work for me was the accents. Mm. So Ewan McGregor, I think, is a fine actor 
in certain roles. Mm -hmm. I think he stumbles over his American accent mm -hmm. in that he, his American is too formalized. It's like, well, I think that what we should do is, like it's just not naturalistic. Like he's conscious about conscious it. Conscious about it and always pronouncing in such a way that it's clear that he thinks Americans should talk and it's distracting to me. Mm. Um, likewise, Rose DeHat and Rebecca Ferguson, who I think is a good actress, um, her Irish wobbled quite a bit. Oh, I didn't know she was Irish. Exactly, she's not Irish, she's British. So not Irish, I didn't even pick up that the character was supposed to be Irish. There may be something to the fact that she's centuries and centuries old and she's been all over the world and she's lost her accent, but if we're gonna start off that strong and just ha have it go away completely, mm -hmm. it's a little bit distracting. Mm. Um, what I will say about this movie is that I believe the goal of these filmmakers was to take us back to The Shining, to The Overlook, in a way that doesn't feel so jarringly different mm -hmm. or so jarringly off-tone that we don't embrace it. Mm. And I didn't always embrace it um, with full love and adoration, but I was able to hang on and cling and get what I needed out of this movie. It was a movie that was content to be a companion piece to The Shining, which I think it absolutely needs and has to be. Mm. The more that we talk about this, the more that I think about what a momentous, difficult challenge this movie must have been to take on. We can nitpick accents or little performance ticks, but really this movie has to balance so many things, like you were saying, the fandom, the shining, the resurrection of these beloved, if you could say that about horror characters, characters, and incorporating archival legacy footage. I mean, these are all really delicate things that the filmmakers had to balance. And when you just take that into consideration, the fact that this movie functions at all is kind of a testament to its achievement. It is comfortable. It, is, it accepts its place in the shining, I don't know, canon. Yeah, so all horror movies have been remade or continued, right? It's just the way it works. Everything from Alien, which became a completely different animal, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, um, The Thing got remade, and, and The Shining, you can, The Exorcist, let's take The Exorcist, where uh, the movies were set, a lot of them, some of them were set later on, obviously, with different characters, and they're set in a different world that we're not in Reagan's bedroom anymore, and we're not with, uh, with the mom character, but, it's just a different world still in the exorcist universe, right? We are telling a different story that happens to have the same theme of possession and exorcism. Right. Um, and we could have done that with Dr. Sleep. Certainly uh, Dan Torrance as an older, uh, you know, alcoholic struggling uh, with his past and the true not being an entity that's looking to hunt him and people like him down to steal their, uh, what do they call them, steam. Yeah. Um, could have been just that story. And it could be tangentially related to The Shining. Right mm -hmm. and the things, but the events that happened at the Overlook, the Overlook burned down, or whatever adaptation is telling you, um, and now we're in this story. But to go back, to go back to the Overlook Hotel with Danny Torrance, and step into it convincingly to where you feel that brace 
and that shiver when the theme comes up and it's slightly different but grander. And it's like stepping into a minefield. And to, to be able to do that successfully and to be able to evoke the same kind of things by having the audacity to step back into the Overlook Hotel where we should have maybe let sleeping dogs lie, to do that takes gust, takes balls, right? To, to be able to do that and to do it in a way that doesn't turn uh, longtime viewers and fans and lovers of The Shining off. Uh, I did speak to people who were like, well, it wasn't the overlook to me, but neither was it the overlook to me when they went back to it in Ready Player One. And still, when they step through the doors, spoiler, if you haven't seen Ready Player One, I guess that's okay. But <laughs> one of the major changes that they made is that when they went delved into a movie scene, in the movie version of Ready Player One, they went into Stanley Kubrick's Shining because of Steven Spielberg's friendship with... Uh, Stanley Kubrick, and it is an immersive world all contained in this hotel. When they went back into the Overlook and Ready Player One and silly sci-fi CGI characters, my breath caught. And I was like, whoa, because of how carefully uh, they paid homage and, and how much detail they put into it, uh -huh. just walking into the main room of the Overlook Hotel. So going back in this way, I was holding my breath. Mm -hmm. And it, it wields such power, that hotel, over me. The idea of going back to it in any way, shape, or form, even if it was to a lesser degree, I would have wanted to check it out. Just to live in that world again. And this was a full-scale production that did it in a way that didn't cut corners, and I thought did it, did it effectively. Yeah, they did. How old were you when you saw The Shining for the first time? I have no idea. That movie has just become a part of the fabric of my movie watching. Um, I could have been as young as eight, maybe. I mean, in a way your experience kind of mirrors Danny Torrance's experience. Yeah, it's a wonder that he would have remembered it because he didn't revisit the Overlook since he was a kid in his formative years who may not have retained those memories, but it was almost as like he knew it. It was a part of him, and he knew what to expect, and he knew his way around that hotel. Well, there's something magical going on there, but also, you know, that was a very traumatic experience in his life that I'm sure left an imprint that is unforgettable. So I think we can agree that as a companion piece to The Shining, Dr. Sleep achieved its goal. But so, is it, so maybe it's not really possible to look at it, examine it on its own merit. I would hate to think so. Honestly, as a movie by itself, like you said, it would be pretty confusing. Um, there's not even a clear version. But if you're a fan of both the books and the movies, who's live, who's dead? Uh, unless you have a clear, okay, my association or allegiance is with the movie version, and so this person is not alive. Whereas Stephen King made a concerted effort to adapt his book, where people, certain people lived and certain people died. Um, it must have made it difficult for the filmmakers to straddle, straddle the line between wanting to be faithful to his novel, Dr. Sleep, and still wanting to tie it in as, uh, to The Shining, uh, where moviegoers would have the closest associations. But Mike Flanagan made this adaptation. Uh-huh. So it wasn't Stephen King adapting his own novel. Yes, thankfully, uh, we should be grateful for that. Because his track record of it, his own adaptations aren't so great. Seems to be a good writer, and his in in a weird way, he's so nerdy that his style translates uh, much better through other people uh, than it would like Stephen or uh, Quentin Tarantino loves a lot of bad movies, and he derives his style and, uh, and and influence from them. But he makes elevated, better movies. It's like just his sensibilities as a filmmaker uh, elevates. Um, cheesy B-movie type themes 
into really good cinema. Into mass market right. films. So I think that Stephen King has sort of those silly um, B-movie 50s horror serials kind of uh, ideas that some people just take and elevate. Stephen King himself is not one of those people. He closely oversaw the TV adaptation of The Shining, the miniseries that came out about 15 years ago, and that is much more closely adapted to his actual novel, and it looks like garbage. So let's talk a little bit about Mike Flanagan. I honestly think that he is a Stephen King fan. I've seen them in interviews together where they sat down. He understood the burden he was undertaking for a movie like an adaptation of the novel that that follows The Shining. And he had a duty to tell the story that one of his heroes had laid down and yet do it in a way that was accessible to everybody, which is no small feat. I don't know how he did it. Um, I, some, a lot of people would argue he didn't do it successfully. Why do you think this film didn't do well at the box office? Because it didn't have a single element other than a screaming child that would have led it led to a trailer which would have drawn tweens or teenagers. Mm. Um, it wasn't, and then there, so the audiences that you're trying to satisfy are, are, are modern movie-going audiences, young people who like horror movies, and adults who are really dubious about any kind of follow-up to, to beloved classics, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know that this trailer, at least, grabbed either of those people. I had to watch it because I have to watch movies for the books I read or movies that I'm really excited about. Unfortunately, I will have to, I have to see every Terminator that comes down the pipe and every Jurassic World, if they keep making it, if they are sequels to Beloved Class, I'm all on board for the new Indiana Jones. I can't not do it for Beloved Franchises. Thankfully, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis have refused, outright refused, to allow remakes of Back to the Future. Sorry, Bless heard. you guys. Yeah. Um, I have to. And I'm so happy when they come out not terrible. Right. And it's not just to it's say that, that this movie is not terrible. Doctor Sleep, I think, is a good movie. I watched Doctor Sleep. I was um, aware that I was aware of its um, comparisons to and callbacks to The Shining, but I enjoyed it. I went for the ride. Um, I wasn't necessarily ahead of it. I was definitely in awe when they returned to the Overlook. I like you, McGregor. I mean, I kind of have to say that my love for him really blossomed in The Phantom Menace, which at this time, I'm pretty embarrassed to say I saw in the theater probably half a dozen times. I think you qualify as a millennial. You should own it. Millennials, like the sequels, or Mille prequels? Millennials were born in 1980, and you're a product of your time. I'm a product of my time. I mean, we're only four years apart, but contemporary filmmaking is certainly my thing. Like, mom and dad are like, we watched Night of the Hunter, children, and I'm like, God, that's so boring. <laughs> like, I just can't get into the movies of the 50s that mom and dad love, right? right. It's not black and white. It doesn't qualify. Definitely a, a, a child of my movie age. Right. right. It's true that Star Wars, the original Star Wars, were before my time. It's true. Yeah. But Ewan McGregor did it, had a British accent in that movie. And if he tried to be American, it might have been as wooden as Hayden Christensen. But I think that he probably just brought his British-type elocution to this role. Like, the American accent was fine. He just had very clear pronunciation. Yeah. It first struck me in August Osage County, which I really liked. Uh, character piece and required him to be sort of authentic as an American and he failed, especially next to people like Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. um, it stuck out, and I was like, oh, in an otherwise great movie with, a lot, with otherwise great actors, 
Ewan McGregor stuck out like a sore thumb. Sore thumb. That's true. Why is Julia Roberts kind of like as American as apple pie? I think she's accessible. Yeah. Um, and she's not at, at her age afraid to take risks, right? She doesn't have to be America's sweetheart or whatever. She can play unlikable characters or flawed characters um, who are just real. I don't know. She's easy. She's like the. She's like if uh, movies if they cast an adult version of Friends uh, using Hollywood movie stars, she would fit into Friends. I think nicely. She's kind of snarky, but also accessible and immediately likable. Yep, I can see that. So this movie, as a continuation of The Shining, as tends to happen in movies like this, it's sort of passing the torch to a younger generation, and not that this story will continue or anything, but Danny Torrance meets a different end in Doctor Sleep than he does in the book, as indeed The Shining ends differently than it does in the movie, so when we come back into Doctor Sleep, the overlook still stands. Whereas in the novel of The Shining, the overlook burns to the ground when the boiler explodes, which is the ending they in fact used for this movie. Right. right? So... At the end of Dr. Sleep, the Danny Torrance character dies, whereas in the book he lives. He dies in the movie. He doesn't live. He doesn't die in the book? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Is that kind of a bad spoiler? Uh, well, the point is the adaptations are, you know, they're sort of loose and free. Um, they're beholden to no one. They, they have nothing to lose in making this kind of movie, so they can change things around. So the original ending of The Shining the novel, the, in the novel was the ending of Dr. Sleep. They do go back to revisit the site of the Overlook Hotel, which, uh, as is mentioned in the original movie, is, is built on an Indian burial ground and those kind of tropes and things. But those may have established those tropes. I'm not really sure. But the point is that that place in the hills in Colorado holds a certain power, right. an evil energy that... that that uh, where it, when things are going to go down, magic-wise, the manifestations are strongest there. Mm-hmm. So it was just a return to uh, to the things that we're familiar with, and I think this movie did it successfully. Okay, so I got it. Let's end at the ending of the movie. Okay. What does it mean for the sludge monster to be in Abra Stone's bathroom? Well, they were in, in Danny Torrance's lockboxes, and, and he let them loose. He let the ghosts of the Overlook out. And then after his untimely demise, where do those ghosts go? If the Overlook burns to the ground in the movie, uh, it was already burned to the ground in the book, and those, those spirits persist. I will say, however, that one of the problems that I had with this movie, as much as I liked many, many elements of it, is I was waiting for the, for the boiler to go. But when that thing net went down, it was kind of with a whimper. Mm. It was a sound effect, kapow. And then flames burst into all the windows uniformly in the hotel, presumably burned to the ground, although what it looked like was just a big CGI building with windows Mm -hmm. uh, on fire. So that was kind of disappointing. I wanted that thing to really go up, and Mm. it didn't. Uh, It seemed kind of anticlimactic. It was, I think, a little bit more emotional that way, like maybe it wasn't as spectacular. But just to be able to see her silhouetted against this burning building that... I mean, because in a sense, like the building ended up being a hero in this, in that the spirits took down Rose the Hat, whereas Danny Torrance and Abra Stone couldn't have done it on their own. I think it was symbolic of Danny facing his demons and allowing that they did that they were going to be a part of him, but they didn't have to control him. Like alcoholism, right? The, the, the demons are a part of him inextricably, but he doesn't have to let them consume him. He can harness that power to, uh, to brace against when it comes to uh, finding his own salvation or liberation or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Deep. That's very deep. What's your reading? Uh, 
Doctor Sleep is not a great movie. It simply happened to be a movie that I connected with, that I liked enough so that I wanted to contribute money to buying on disc, so that somebody would have seen this movie and the movie would have made some money. So I will give this a high-end, all-right rating. Um, everybody was good in it, with the exception of some wonky accent stuff, but I liked it, and I think more people should watch it, particularly, I, maybe I should say only, devoted fans of The Shining who feel like some revisiting of those worlds that we love would be warranted. And I think this is that. You? Movie for the fans. Movie for the fans and no one else. If you haven't seen The Shining, please don't see Dr. Sleep. It's, it seems like a simple movie, but it has, it's taking on a monumental task, and I think it does it well. So, Dr. Sleep is a good. Not boring. It's a good, not boring movie. But I'd be curious to know what our Patreon fans think of it. First of all, thank you for being a Patreon patron. We really appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to our episode on Dr. Sleep. If you have anything you want to share with us, please send us an email at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail or whatever at 818-835-0473. Thanks for listening. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.